Welcome to Verified Rx, your prescription for success. Brought to you by the Vizian Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence. Alzheimer's disease devastates patients and families and has limited therapeutic options. Aducanumab is the first drug in a new class approved for Alzheimer's under the FDA's accelerated approval process. I'm Gretchen Brummel, Pharmacy Executive Director in the Vizian Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence and your program host. Joining me today for the first in a two-part series to discuss the approval, role, and coverage of this new medication are Dr. Mandy Leonard, Senior Director of Drug Use Policy and Formulary Management at the Cleveland Clinic, and my Vizient colleague, Dr. Stephen Lucio, Senior Principal in Pharmacy Solutions. Welcome to both of you. Hi, my name is Mandy Leonard. I am currently the System Director for Drug Use Policy and Formulary Management at Cleveland Clinic. I've been in that role for the past 25 years, and I do many things with formulary reviews as things are approved by the FDA, and I'm really excited to be here today. Thank you. And Stephen, welcome back to the podcast. Gretchen, it's great to be here with you as always, and looking forward to discussing this topic with you and Mandy. Mandy, let's start with you. How does aducanumab fit into the treatment for Alzheimer's disease? Well, the history of Alzheimer's disease therapeutics is quite interesting. We have to go back to the mid-90s to look at when the first agent was approved, and that was in the class of medications known as cholinesterase inhibitors. So got to go back to when I was in pharmacy school to think about that drug, and that's denepazil, which was approved by the FDA in 1996 followed by another cholinesterase inhibitor in 2000, known as rivastigmine, followed by galantamine in 2001. And all of these agents were approved for mild to moderate Alzheimer's disease. There was one additional agent approved for Alzheimer's disease in 2003, known as memantine, and that was indicated for moderate to severe Alzheimer's disease. As we look at these agents over the years and how they were approved, they were evaluated using different cognition tests and scales in clinical trials. Patients were assigned to both treatment and placebo had a wide range of responses. Most patients show deterioration in cognitive function. So what does that mean for us as pharmacists and our patients? It means that these agents really were not sustainable, potentially over a period of time. And upon discontinuation, maybe if a patient had an adverse event or something like that, patients in the treatment and placebo group had similar cognition scores. As far as adverse effects with these agents, many for the cholinesterase inhibitors were gastrointestinal in nature. They also had some central nervous system effects as well, whereas memantine really focused on that central nervous system effect. And if you look at the cost of these agents, they can range anywhere from about a few dollars annually all the way up to about $3,000. As we look at that span of time, really within the arena of therapeutics for Alzheimer's disease, we really didn't have anything to say that we could help the disease or use an agent that might help our patients better. So there was a lot of excitement when everybody started to talk about aducanumab, and there was a lot of hype about this particular agent. And the reason for that, it is a monoclonal antibody that targets aggregated beta amyloid with dose-dependent reductions in these beta amyloid plaques. That's very different from what I described before, either with the cholinesterase inhibitor or memantine, which I forgot to mention earlier, is an NMDA receptor antagonist. And if you think about the monoclonal antibody that aducanumab is and how it impacts these beta amyloid plaques, there's an imbalance between the production and clearance of amyloid peptides, resulting in accumulation, aggregation, and plaque formation, 
And that can potentially lead to the development of Alzheimer's disease because when these plaques form, they're directly toxic to the synapses and neurons. And aducanumab was the first drug FDA approved to directly modify this core molecular feature of the disease. Thank you for that background. That was really helpful. Stephen, can you refresh us on the accelerated approval process and why this agent was funneled down that path? Absolutely. And one of the things I can't explain, accelerated approval, your question about why aducanumab went down this path, it will be somewhat theoretical because that's one of the controversies. But yes, as we've talked about even on this podcast, there are multiple mechanisms that FDA has to expedite the approval of medications. And accelerated approval is one of those. We want safe and effective medications. And if we can get those quicker, the better, because there's a lot of patient circumstances and diseases where we really don't have great treatments still. Alzheimer's is one of those. When we talk about the accelerated approval pathway, one of the things we have to specifically do is understand the concept of a surrogate endpoint. One of the things that gets brought up frequently when it comes to investigational medications is how long it takes to get them approved. And that is exacerbated if we had to wait until we had complete evidence that the medication did something like improved overall survival or really affected disease progression, because those things can take decades to actually see. As one way to try and get potentially beneficial medications onto the market, we have this process called accelerated approval that is based upon the concept of a surrogate endpoint. If there is some clinical manifestation or a lab test or some type of marker that we believe is indicative of disease progression or is indicative of how circumstances in terms of long treatment will take, if we can influence that specific endpoint, then we are able to say potentially that this medication that we're looking at and we're investigating likely will work because we have this initial evidence in this endpoint that it will, in fact, do what we think it would do in terms of overall survival or preventing further disease progression. This has been something that has been heavily utilized or increasingly utilized by the FDA to try and address critical areas where we don't have great treatments like Alzheimer's. That is how the process is supposed to work. Now, there's some challenges with that. One of the challenges is the first and foremost is that when we pick a surrogate endpoint or when we think that there's a good metric that would be indicative of disease progression, sometimes that's the case, but sometimes it's not. We might think that this specific measurement is going to tell us what's going to happen in the long term. And after a while, it turns out that really didn't. Even though the positive outcome for the endpoint was there, the overall disease progression, overall survival was not there. Another big challenge is the fact that frequently we don't really usually know because sometimes these overarching of the longer term clinical trials that drug companies are supposed to do after they get accelerated approval, they may not be completed in a quick period of time. They may not be conclusive or maybe they show that the drug actually didn't do what we thought it would do. So those are all the things, both the positive and potential negative of accelerated approval. This is what we're going to talk about even more. Why was Agihelm sent down this pathway? Like Mandy described, we believe, and it's been hypothesized, that the beta amyloid plaque is a good indicator and a cause for the worsening in cognitive function as it relates to Alzheimer's. And so there's been this thought about, can we develop medications to target those plaques and decrease them, hopefully, to improve Alzheimer's. That makes sense as why that might be a surrogate endpoint. But the challenge is that when the FDA advisory committee first looked at aducanumab and the advisory committee asked FDA if the accelerated approval and beta amyloid as a surrogate endpoint would be appropriate, 
they were told, no, that was not the case. And the advisory committee recommended against this drug's approval. And about six months later, FDA came back, approved the drug using beta amyloid as a surrogate endpoint under the accelerated approval mechanism. That's usually not the way in which things work. Usually those types of things are done prospectively rather than retrospective. So that's how we got to this point. It's very controversial still and has been the subject of a lot of dialogue. Mandy, I know, is going to talk more about the clinical and safety specifics that have helped also contribute to that controversy. Yeah, it's a fascinating background, great explanation of the accelerated approval process and detail on the utility of surrogate endpoints. So Mandy, what do the aducanumab trials show in terms of efficacy? I'd like to thank Stephen for that great review of the accelerated process, because I think when I go over how we got there with what the results were from the phase three trials, it will make a lot more sense as well why people were so confused by all of this. So there were some phase one studies that were done with aducanumab that did show, as I mentioned before, that you can have dose-dependent reductions in these beta amyloid plaques as measured on PET scans. Based on that phase one data, there were two phase three trials that were conducted. They were known as the ENGAGE and EMERGE trials. There were over 3,200 patients in both of those trials combined. They were two identical 18-month double-blind placebo-controlled studies conducted in 348 sites in 20 countries. I don't mean to bore everybody with the inclusion criteria and some of the exclusion criteria, but I think it's very important to understand how they got to where they got to when you look at the results and the applicability of those results to the final FDA approval and then the change in the FDA approval indication. So as we take a look at inclusion criteria, they included patients who were 50 to 85 years old with early Alzheimer's disease. There had to be objective evidence of cognitive impairment at screening. They did use some scoring, such as the mini mental state exam, as well as clinical dementia rating scales. And so patients had to meet certain scores. And when you look at their baseline scores, these were patients that had less dysfunction, putting them as patients who had early Alzheimer's disease, less cognitive impairment. As far as key exclusion criteria, patients could not have a stroke or uh, transient ischemic attack within the past year. They couldn't have impaired renal or hepatic dysfunction, no history of brain hemorrhage, bleeding disorders, or cerebrovascular abnormalities. And we'll talk about why that's important when we talk about the safety of this medication and the use of certain blood thinners as well. The intervention that occurred in these trials where the patients were randomized in a one-to-one-to-one fashion to either receive low-dose aducanumab high-dose aducanumab, or placebo. So interestingly enough, there were actually several versions of this protocol over the period of time as they were looking and noticing that potentially high-dose aducanumab might show the efficacy in these trials. So the patients in the low-dose group were titrated to 3 or 6 milligrams per kilogram and maintained on that through the study where the high-dose group initially was titrated to 6 or 10 milligrams per kilogram. However, there was a later protocol amendment where patients were receiving 10 milligrams per kilogram only in the protocol. 
The primary objective of this particular trial or these trials were the clinical dementia rating, and they used a sum of boxes at 18 months. If you're unfamiliar with that, like I was when I looked at the data, it's a scale of 0 to 18, and a lower score means less dysfunction. Additionally, secondary objectives included that mini mental state exam. It also included an Alzheimer's disease assessment scale, which they looked at a cognitive subscale. And then they also looked at another scale that looked at the activities of daily living. As Stephen has mentioned earlier, other objectives included measuring the amyloid on PET scan as well as TAW on PET scan as well. So as we take a look at those baseline demographics, based on all those scores, the patients definitely had less dysfunction. There was a first set of results where actually these trials were stopped due to futility. And that's where Stephen was mentioning kind of some of those discussions that were going on. What happened is they did post hoc analysis, there was some protocol amendments and changes. And at the very end, what they found was that in the engaged trial, there was no difference in comparison to placebo in all those scales that I had mentioned. However, when you looked at the eMERGE data, what you did see is that in certain aspects in the higher dose, that 10 milligram per kilogram, you did see some differences in some of their primary objectives. When they looked at everything as well in aggregate, they did definitely notice changes in the amyloid PET results, which they definitely showed reduction in those amyloid plaques, which Stephen had mentioned before could potentially have been used as a surrogate endpoint for efficacy. And they saw some things as well with the TAW PET scans as well. What does this mean overall? This is very controversial. You have two trials that were set up exactly the same. And then you kind of had futility analysis where things were stopped. And then you have a restarting and a reevaluation of a post hoc analysis. You have a protocol change where patients were put on higher doses. And in addition, I should mention that patients were tested for APOE carriers, and they were really making sure and doing different dosages with those particular patients. But in further analysis and further protocols, they actually upped the dose and they could get the 10 milligrams per kilogram. So to me, you're kind of slicing and dicing the data. And at the end of the day, you did see some efficacy with the eMERGE trial. And then you did see the reduction in the amyloid plaques. So I think to myself as a clinician, it kind of was like, why aren't the data matching? What's going on here? Why were all these protocol versions happening? Why were all these changes happening? It was very confusing about what the FDA was doing as well at the same time. Mandy, that was a wonderful review of the trial design and outcomes and nuances of really the progression of how we saw things unfold. For our listeners, we will be sure to link those phase three trials in the show notes for your reference. Mandy, you mentioned safety earlier. What does the trial show there? As far as safety is concerned, the thing that is most striking is that they notice that when patients were using aducanumab that they saw patients could develop amyloid-related imaging abnormalities known as ARIA. And there's two different types. There is ARIA-E, which results in a vasogenic edema. There's also an ARIA-H, which results in some microhemorrhaging that can be seen. That sounds very concerning, right? We have some edema and we have some bleeding that can happen in the brain. When they looked at everything all together, 
they did notice that patients in the aducanumab group did have a higher rate of aria in comparison to placebo. So the aria in the two phase three studies evaluating aducanumab in patients with early Alzheimer's disease, what they did see was that patients in the aducanumab group overall, as far as mild symptoms that happened when patients had aria was about 63.6% of those patients who received aducanumab. Moderate symptoms during an aria event was 26.7% in the aducanumab-treated patients. And severe symptoms during an aria event was 6% of patients receiving aducanumab. When you look at everything in aggregate, what people really do talk about is that in the patients that receive the higher dose of aducanumab, the 10 milligram per kilogram, which as you recall, I mentioned is where they saw the efficacy when they were slicing and dicing the data, really in those patients, you could see a higher percentage of aria. So any type of aria, whether it is the edema or the hemorrhage, was up to 40% of patients in the trials. So there is some concern about that. We want a drug that's efficacious in the arena, but we also want a drug that is safe as well. So there were protocol adjustments when patients did develop ARIA, and there are some recommendations when the drug should be held, when the drug should be restarted that's in the product labeling. But this would be the most concerning adverse effect that people talk about when they look at these trials. Yeah, and definitely something to take into consideration when doing that risk-benefit analysis with this medication. So I can appreciate that. We've run out of time for this episode, but please join Mandy and Stephen for part two of the series where we examine formulary decision-making, CMS factors, and patient and family education. And to our listeners, please join us for more Verified Rx podcasts. Subscribe today, like us, and send us your comments. We'd love to hear from you. Verified Rx is your prescription for success and is brought to you by the Vizient Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence. I'm Gretchen Brummel. Thanks for listening.